matchmaker. Subtitles, where we spike the canon in music and movies. In each episode, we will offer up replacements for each title in the top 100 of a well-known, well-regarded ranking, and we'll walk away with a pair of subtitles, which we think deserve more acclaim, and to which attention must be paid. I'm Matt, and I'm replacing the top 100 entries on Spin Magazine's 2015 list of the top 300 albums from 1985 until 2015, starting with number one and working down. And I'm Tim. I'm replacing the entries on the 2007 AFI 100 Years 100 Movies list, starting with number 100 and working up. So here's how this works. The two of us have gone through each list, decided on a theme of the original entry, and have come up with a pair of potential replacement titles which share that theme. We'll talk about that original entry, sometimes we'll regret that we have to get rid of it, and sometimes we'll rejoice in being able to drop it. But this podcast is not just another dissection of an outmoded list. In part one of this episode, I have two new albums to talk through, and Tim will make the choice for the subtitles albums list. Then, in part two, Tim will have two new movies to discuss, and I will decide which of them deserves a place on the subtitles movies list. Sometimes I'll have seen the movies, and sometimes Tim will have listened to the albums. But at the end of the day, what matters is how well we've sold the titles. And at the end of some of those days, one of us will want to bop the other for that choice. And once we finish this off, we'll do some fun activities with the new lists we've collaborated on. But before we can get there, we have to do this. Today's title to be replaced is 69 Love Songs. Nice. Magnetic Fields 1999 album. Tim with the the only proper rejoinder to any mention of that number. (laughs) I mean, look, I figured we needed to get that out of the way sooner rather than later. (laughs) It stops me from doing it, so I'm good with it. (laughs) Man, always middle schoolers at heart. Also, I want the entire subtitles audience to know, all like 10 of you, that I think I should get a medal for keeping my composure when Jaws like the podcat shows up in my peripheral (laughs) in the middle of reading that. (laughs) I thought you did a good job. (laughs) <laughs> I saw him, and internally I started laughing, but I, I, I teach. I can keep composure. Um, anyway, there's music to talk about today. <clears throat> I did so almost much. screw that up. <laughs> What's that? So much of it. There's so much music. I, I know. So much music today. More than when we had three double albums. <laughs> if you can believe that, and that's... Uh, almost entirely due to the spin entry this week, 69 Love Songs by the Magnetic Fields, which is a literal title. Um, so before you pause this episode and go out there to check it out, which, I don't know, that'd be cool if you did that for each episode. You don't have to, certainly. But before you do it for this one, I have to warn you, that title is literal. It's a three-hour triple-disc album of 69 love songs. Um, so... Middle school puns aside, the title should be read literally also. And for that fact alone, it's just impressive. Uh, There's a certain audacity to just, I'm going to put out 69 love songs at once. And then doing it, that to me is forever impressive. That said, this is not an album I have feelings about. And good or bad really um it is you know 
This is number 16 on the spin list of the 16 that have come up so far. This is by far the one I'm most just indifferent towards. Um, and that's not because it's bad or because it's weak or because anything's wrong with it. I just, I don't know. It doesn't do it for me. And I'm exactly the type of person that would be like, all right, you're giving me three discs and three hours of music with a conceptual theme. Yeah, I'm in. Let's do it. Um, I'm exactly the audience for that. But it just doesn't quite work for me. It's very, I mean, it's also very twee. Like, I don't think it gets labeled as such that much, but, like, it definitely is. I think it's the precursor to a lot of that early 2000s twee stuff. Um, and even bands that were, that were, you know, coming up around the same time as as the Magnetic Fields. Like, there's some Bell and Sebastian in here. There's some Camera Obscura in here. Like, <clears throat> a lot of that late 90s, early 2000s indie pop from from the UK. Like, that's sort of the, the lane... That 69 Love Songs is working in, I think. Um, Magnetic Fields is not a band I've listened to a lot at all, and barely anything outside of this. I mean, admittedly, huge album, so like, there's a lot to dig on, to dig into here. It's not like I've only listened to 10 songs, but um, I like. I don't know. They feel like, from what I've heard, they're a band that before this was much more electronic and was much more of one person and 69 love songs is still written entirely by the same person and that's kind of the preface to our theme for today um the podcast is presenting me his butt now and i'm still not laughing so everyone everyone give me credit here um and they were more electronic um more I don't like electro pop, chamber pop type stuff. And then 69 love songs just really explodes everything. Um, it's, it's a bit of everything. Like you can go through this album, you can hear, uh, sort of like parodic jazz. You can hear shanties, country, Western, like the twee indie electro pop I've mentioned. There's some punk stuff on here, like demented lounge songs, accordions come up every so often. There's some chugal rock songs. Like there's a bit of everything throughout this. So it's not for lack of, of trying very eclectic album that can keep your attention throughout. And I think anything that can for three hours is just an achievement. Um, but that said, some songs stand out to me. Um, I'm a fan of like My Sentimental Melody, which I think has some Morrissey in it. I don't know if Tim got to that one in his listen before he realized it was three hours, but um, there's some there's the accordion shows up in that one, and then it, I don't know. It sounds like a Morrissey song to me. Love is like jazz, which is kind of a faux jazz song. The metaphor is actually good; like it's pretty apt. Um, that love is like jazz, that you're always working off the standard, that there's always kind of the same thing there, but each each play, each iteration is different. It's its own thing. It's its own special moment. Um, so the, like, I think the metaphor is really solid there, and the music is fun. It's interesting. Like It's taking that uh, taking a jazz standard and kind of breaking it. Like It's bad jazz on purpose. Um, if You Don't Cry is another song I like, which is more of a straightforward pop tune. Um, and... I don't think it has the line in the middle, if you're not crying, it's not love, which, like, I don't think that's true all the time, but I think there's something in that that, like, a lot of pop songs aren't really trying to work with. Um, just that acknowledgement that, like, there has to be that outpouring of emotion for it to be something, like, truly serious. It's just a lot. 
like it's a lot in every way possible and the songs themselves are fairly short you're looking at like two to three minute songs in general um and they're i mean they're pop songs they're good but there's they're catchy that someone could come up with as many melodies and hooks at once to me again it's just super impressive <clears throat> which is odd considering it's the entire concept is like all the many facets of love um how sometimes it's so youthful and innocent a song like uh, I think I'm getting the title slightly wrong here, but like, let's be bunny rabbits or like, it is just that sort of innocent exuberance of love of first love um, to more sedated and even somber and jaded tunes. Um, Bittersweet tears is in there somewhere or bitter tears. I think it is um, like, it's the full spectrum of reactions to love, to relationships, to, to being with another person. Um, so I don't know, like Tim. I know you said you listened, you got through some of it, and then realized, oh God, it's so long. <laughs> and but I'm just wondering, like, what were your reactions from what from what you have heard, and like your sense of what the, the like what this thing is even trying to do? So I have I have three takes. Um, I'm actually going to preface by saying that I'm not I'm not a total idiot, and I do try to look to see how long each of these are before I like go listen to them. So I did. I did check this out and like, I don't know, I kind of wish someone had seen my eyes bug out of my head when I realized that there were literally 69 songs. Go ahead, Matt. No, I, I just wanted to apologize. I didn't mean to make you sound like an idiot. I just don't think anyone goes into an album with this title and expects actually that many songs no, and like no, three hours of music. <laughs> that's exactly, that's exactly it. So like I was, I was looking at it and was just going to pop it on and listen to it while I was playing like MVP 05 basically. And then I was like, I'm not prepared to play this video game for three hours. <laughs> so that is my first take. The length is definitely a thing. Um, I want. I need to mention that Stephen Merritt sounds exactly like H. John Benjamin when he sings. So that's important. Um, and then, I don't know. I, I, guess, I guess my thought was that I had a similar kind of like, okay, they're trying some different things. They are looking from a lot of angles. There are several different approaches they are taking here musically they're playing with genres a little bit on the same album that's all fun and then i think about an album i actually enjoyed listening to that does all of that and that's uh welcome interstate managers by fountains of wayne which does all of these other things and is a third of the length and has multiple songs which are much better bangers than anything on here um not to like just mention the only band i know or anything but that was definitely a thing that came to mind for me um, do we want to talk about the the length thing more? Because I kind of feel like there's there are corollaries here between your three hour music and your like four hour movie, and how we kind of Im import uh, this idea that it's supposed to be meaningful if it's that long. Is that is that worth discussing, or is that is that too meta? Uh, no, I think it's interesting. I think bulk so often gets read as importance or that like there's so much to say that it couldn't possibly be shorter but I mean, there's a power to concision I think that's going to come up in one of the this replacement albums in particular um, but there's a there's a power to knowing and to having the thread and to saying okay I've, I've said my piece and now I'm done um, I, it's weird because it's not an album that I think of as weird as this is about to sound, I don't think of 69 love songs as bloated because the songs themselves are so crisp and often so short and so 
um, like they take an idea and they run with it and then they move on to something else. So like I'm in on the concept, like I'm in on, let's just write a ton of songs about something that needs a ton of songs to actually get into with any, uh, profundity really. So it's not an album that I think of as bloated despite it being so long, but no one's sitting down to listen to three hour albums except like the deepest of jam band fans. And they don't want three minute pop songs the whole time. They want to hear the musicality, the instrumentation, the the songs that regu- that normally run for like six minutes go on for 16. Um, <clears throat> so I don't like it's, it's an album that had a big impact and that has a lot of critical reception, clearly. <clears throat> Pitchfork gave it a nine as well. So this is a very well-received and well-regarded album. <clears throat> and it's one that I appreciate exists. And like, I, like, I love the audacity of it. Like that, that honestly really stands out to me. It's just, I don't know, it's not a type of music itself that I'm going to sit through for three hours. Like, I don't get mad at it. I don't get upset. I don't get bored necessarily i'm just sort of like okay that was enough i'm done on to something else um so i mean i sort of went off topic there but i think you're right that like length oftentimes does lend a sense of significance um and sometimes that can be right but not always um longer is not inherently better um and put it this way i was sitting in on a bunch of interviews for my uh for my writing center this week and if you're interviewing someone you notice right away when rambling nervous rambling becomes a problem even if it's understandable versus someone who's very concise with their answers and knows when to stop and that stopping um not calling out anyone in particular there obviously just like that that's a definite thing and that shows up in more facets than music and movies and so i think Length here does not necessarily mean better. But that said, I think this is honestly like a heck of a way to take up three hours. Um, it's not the prog thing you would expect if I told you there's a three-hour <laughs> album out there. Um, and I think that in it's uh, like just that bait and switch is kind of funny in itself. But w- what did you want to say about this, though? Well, I'm just sort of interested in this idea, critically speaking, like in on movie Twitter, like people are talking about like the four hour, the seven hour movie and talking about like how that's kind of a thing in itself. And once it gets beyond a certain level of length, uh, it's kind of hard to ignore that anymore. And, and so much of what you actually talk about is how long it is as opposed to what actually goes on in it. Um, and then you think about critically how many, there are so few movies that, you know, are three, four hours or more and that everyone's like, yeah, that movie's terrible. Like once you get up to a certain a certain timestamp, it's almost hard to it's almost hard to find a movie that doesn't get the seal of approval, like Greed or Satan Tango or something. Like there's always there's always something that's incredibly long, and it's supposed to be so good in part because of the the depth of it, but part of it is also like, did I really waste seven hours watching cows? You know, like which is which is just something that which is something that I think is interesting, and I'm not demeaning Bellatar here but like this is a it's an interesting thing to me that once it reaches a certain length that kind of becomes the story and I feel like there's extra pressure to say that it's good um 
I don't know. Like, there's a lot. There's stuff about the album that I liked. I would say I. I think I got like 75 minutes in or so before I had to like do something else with my life. Um, but that was that was my my general thought on that. And it's it is kind of too bad too because if this were just 69 love songs and it were an hour 30 and they picked the best 25, how different would it be? You know. Well, I think that gets into an inter- interesting question. I was just kicking around about cuts. Um, this was a big thing when we were talking Blade Runner and Heaven's Gate. Ah, yeah. In particular, like, I, I mean, obviously this happens in music when we talk about artists like taking stuff out of the vault or like you get demos or just expanded recording sessions of albums that we love. Like this happens all the time in music. Um, and like there's sort of that accepted mo- uh, model that the artist will decide on like, here's the batch of songs that's most important for this album. And maybe 10, 20, 30 years down the road, we get this expanded vision of like, okay, what was going on in their process in their heads that whole time? Um, the pettiest day just released a, a bunch of demos and extra songs and alternative takes for the wildflowers sessions. Um, <clears throat> It's a huge album, as like music fans expect when that sort of thing comes out, and it it becomes more of a, a way into what were they actually going through, like what was their process, what were they thinking about, what were they messing with. So in that way, it becomes less an album and more a kind of vision of a moment. Um, I think that's often how that happens in music, but thinking about that in terms of movies, just how much fight there is over certain takes of movies, whether that's something good like Blade Runner or Heaven's Gate or something like the Schneider takes. I mean, there's always this, not in every movie, clearly, but a lot of times on, because then it becomes a matter of whose vision is it? Like, is it the editor? Is it the production company? Is it the director? Like, who's actually controlling that thing in a way that, I don't know, I don't think we necessarily get that question with music all the time. We should in some cases, I think, because... I mean, now it's different because you can just release stuff individually. Not that that's inherently a successful monetarily model, but there's a lot more artist control in a way now that when this comes out in 99, this is sort of peak, uh, you know, record companies and record labels or have their hands in anything and they want that massive success. But that does open the doors for things like this where, um, I'm not sure what record label this was released on. I should look into that. But like, if that's a record label that had a big pop smash that year and just made total bank on that, um, then you can fund Stephen Merritt's three-hour uh, love cabaret. Um, <laughs> that's what they should have yeah, called I think, it. I mean, when the <laughs> he uh, mild teaser when the when the new Tool album came out last year, a lot of the discussion was. God, every song is over nine minutes. And I mean, we should have known that it's tool. Like that's what they do. But I mean, I think you're right that at a certain point, length becomes a talking point that kind of distracts from the genuine goodness of what's happening in the whole. And when you look at critical evaluations of 69 love songs, it's less that it's three hours and more that my God, there's so many songs and like, how do you possibly fit them all together into a narrative? Like, what can we actually say about this um, critically? And in most of them that ends up in like, okay, let's just, let's just rapidly enumerate some of the different things you'll see on there. And uh, let me read from the pitchfork 
some of these songs I've mentioned, but you can get kind of an idea of what's happening throughout. Um, <clears throat> well, I could write a thesis dissecting each and every song on this album, but that would take months, as a prism refracts light into a spectrum of colors. 69 Love Songs not only refracts love into a spectrum of emotions, but also refracts the love song itself into a, spe a spectrum of musical forms. There's a duet between a dysfunctional Sonny and Cher, yeah, oh yeah, a country gospel tune, confusing religious and secular love, kiss me like you mean it, and an amusingly lighthearted tale of a soldier's drunken tryst, the night you can't remember. There's giddy lust, let's pretend we're bunny rabbits, romantic longing, come back from San Francisco, sleazy leering underwear, <clears throat> resignation and despair, no one will ever love you. There are genre exercises such as faux beatnik jazz, love is like jazz, Paul Simonish world music world love, Gilbert and Sullivan style, mincing harpsichord, for we are the king of the boudoir, Merritt's cartoony day-glow interpretation of punk rock, punk love, Scottish folk, which has a Robert Burns-ass title that I'm not going to butcher here, and a brief <laughs> Philip Glass tribute, experimental music love. Uh, there are also plenty of archetypal magnetic field songs with those de trademark deadpan drama queen vocals, casually depressive lyrics, and clever rhymes. Um, but Merritt also shows he can pen some surprisingly sincere moving ballads, Busby Berkeley Dreams, The Book of Love. Like, that's what most of the reviews, I think, defaulted into. Not defaulted, like, I think rightfully, like, let's just look at all the different things this thing is trying, because there's so much to take on, and how do we make sense of that? Like, how do you get a thesis out of this? And kind of the thesis of the Pitchfork review is that it's not an album that is more or less than the sum of its parts. Like, it is exactly the sum of its parts. And that's the point, that when you have so many songs and it's taking on love as a concept, like, this is, it's a many splendid and terrible and frightening thing. And 69 Love Songs is trying to look at all of those and look at all the ways you can convey those emotions. Feels like it feels like I haven't read any of these reviews, but this idea that it that an album can contain so many different styles in it is almost it reminds me of the Kubrick thing, you know, where like you talk to enough high schoolers and they're all like Stanley Kubrick is great uh, because he made great movies in so many different genres, and one could say that is a correlational thing, not a causational thing. I don't know. I think people just. I think I think that variety is is sort of like length. It's another thing. It's like, oh yes, we give you points for variety. When I don't know. Once again, I wish that more of these had been better and that there were fewer of them. Like that's that's my my kind of short version of this. No, I think. I mean, I think honestly, none of the songs are actually bad. Like they're decent attempts at all of these different styles i think but yeah that like for me there's just not enough actual standouts out of 69 like i count maybe five that like really really truly stick with me more that i recognize and could know and like bob along to but like maybe five that like okay yeah those are the ones that i'm gonna remember that's not a great hit rate um I did not expect to talk about 69 love songs this long, but... <laughs> I'm just... I think I just sort of reached a point where I was looking for looking for something that would tell me why this is on the list, frankly. Like, again, I did not get to the other two hours or so, um, but you, you would think just based on probability I would have gotten something in the first hour, hour 15 that, like... 
I don't know, that that stood out as much as anything from that Lauren Hill album we talked about last time out. Or, I mean, even even from Pavement, I thought the Pavement album was better than this. And I don't think that there's anything else that we have we have spent so much time saying bad things about. Um, just on the whole, I thought that was a better album than the equivalent amount of music I got through this before I had to had to go to the grocery store. So I don't know. Maybe I'm just cranky. I mean, you're always cranky, but that's sort of what I mean. Like that pavement album, I like actively diss, but this one, I just, I don't know. It's sort of an apathy, not in a negative way, but just like literally apathetic towards it. Um, Again, I think it's an impressive effort. It's audacious. I'm glad it exists. I respect it for what it is. I think it is something that the feeling of it necessarily comes from having sat down and listened to all of it. But chances are most people aren't going to do that or be able to do that. Like, we have things to do, and this is a different age than 1999. Like, there's so many ways to get distracted over the course of three hours. Um, So maybe that's a thing, too. Like, I don't know if this is an album that can really play anymore. Like, um, besides your biggest musos, I don't know who's going to sit down and be like, yep, I'm going to listen to all of that right now. Um, So... I don't know, like, let me put it this way. I don't think it's a bad album. I just, I don't have particular emotions towards it. And I appreciate what it is. I appreciate that it exists. And I appreciate Stephen Merritt as a songwriter, which we're going to get into in a minute. So I want to say, you know, we say in our intro, sometimes we're sad to see albums go and other times we're excited. I'm neither with this, really. Like, I'm kind of glad it's on the list. Like, it's a big, different thing. Um, I don't think it's 16th, but I'm glad it's on the list somewhere. So I'm not like happy to see it go, but I'm also not particularly sad to see it go. Um, which is, I apologize if our listeners are like huge magnetic fields fans and 69 love songs taught you like all the contours and nuances of love and like how to actually feel with someone. And I know that sounds very sarcastic of me, but like, I was about to say, I don't know. I'd love to hear from, I'd love to hear from someone who has like that really genuine connection with this album and with this band. And maybe that would help me understand what I'm missing. Sorry. You were saying, (laughs) I was, I was going to say in my slightly less sarcastic way, if you need to like find out what love is like, could I recommend a human being perhaps that might, you know, help you learn about that. As opposed to as opposed to this, um, unless you really, really need to learn how to love from Bob of Bob's Burgers, that's that's uh, that's an exception I would take. I mean, who does it, man? <laughs> you just made it way more appealing. <laughs> um, I will say there were there were I mean there are several other options for all of these, but two that stood out to me for different themes for this week would have been a length which would have gotten more into the question we just talked about. Um, and I could have gone nuts with that. But also, uh, deep vocals was another one that crossed my mind, which was basically an excuse to talk about Future Islands, um, which is a band I shoved on Tim last night. So everyone go out and listen to Future Islands. I'll see if I can shove them into a future episode. Um, <clears throat> but we're not going to do those. We're going to look at... What I've titled, I'm not entirely happy with this, but I'll explain it. Brian Wilson effect. 
And here's what I mean. So the story of 69 Love Songs is that Stephen Merritt, the, the principal songwriter of the Magnetic Fields, he wrote every song here before this album. My understanding is that the band was basically just him doing everything. Um, like, he made every piece. This album has a bit more of a full band feel. There's other people on here singing and doing stuff. Um, but he still writes everything. Um, and basically, he was sitting and, like, lounging around various bars in New York City. And um, he was either in a drag bar or a cabaret at some point and, like, came up with the idea for this. And it started as 100. And then he was like, nope, I'm going to do 69. 100 is ridiculous. And and so we get this. Um, and, it, it again, it all comes from his, his mind. These are all written by him. And... I I find that really impressive, whether I like the album or not. Like, kudos to him. That's a lot of artistic output. And to me, that sounds like a Brian Wilson type thing. That this is someone kind of lonely wandering and coming up with just pop tune after pop tune. There are a lot of great melodies on the album. There's a lot of great moments. Um, I don't think Merritt is to the, the genius level of Brian Wilson, um, <clears throat> but there's shades there. Um, the reason I'm not totally happy with this title is because in none of these artists are we really working with a band like the Beach Boys. Um, Brian Wilson, there, there's no uh, <laughs> there's no scumbag like Mike Love for these <laughs> artists to fight against, like Brian Wilson had to fight against. Um but of course, the, if you're not familiar with the story with him, genius songwriter, um, some of the best pop songs of our time, really vital to pushing the 60s forward. Pet Sounds has... Is that our time? Uh, well, you know what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> He's still alive. He's our time. Uh, <laughs> um, Pet Sounds has documented noted effect on Paul McCartney and is largely why Sergeant Peppers is, is as experimental as it is. Like Brian Wilson is crucial to music. Um, and he's writing almost uh, probably all of the music for the beach boys. Um, but he notoriously massive, uh, mental illness and struggles to the point where he had to stop touring. Like he just couldn't do it anymore. And he much preferred to just be in the studio making music, um, and basically tortured himself with finding the next best thing, like pushing forward, constantly innovating, um, <clears throat> a genius songwriter just rattled by, um, various mental issues. Um, and it's a sad story and it was sad for a long time. And I think the last decade or so, he seems to be more, like being able to manage it more. Um, and I think he's actually gone out on a few tours and like, um, the beach boys name is caught in litigation, I think. And like who actually owns the songs and all that. But like, it seems like he's in a better place now, but, um, it's basically the story of, again, he's a genius songwriter. Um, but just addled with a bunch of different issues and much preferred to just stay in the studio and writing music. And that upset Mike Love in particular and some of the other Beach Boys who wanted him out on tour. Um, and then there was that that disjuncture between, well, he's just back home writing everything and they're not really contributing. So um, it's a difficult story, but this isn't about the Beach Boys. Um, go, go listen to Pet Sounds. That that's the that's the, the Beach Boys assessment. Um, 
the Rolling Stones list that just came out moved Marvin Gaye to number one, and like, I'm good with that. But I was also sort of down for the like, yeah, Pet Sounds is number one all time. Um, I don't know. I like both of those as opposed to a Beatles album, but that's me. So let's talk about two other artists that I think in some way fit in that Brian Wilson category of genius songwriters, um, absolute forefront of their art, but um, struggle in different ways, um, have a guarded or cantankerous or just um, not sure the word I need here. Um, Temperamental. Tumultuous relation. What's that? Temperamental. Isn't that the euphemism? Yeah, temperamental. That's a good one. It's kind of a tumultuous relationship with fame, with their audience, with other musicians. Um, so artists along that lines. But again, neither one of them is dealing with a band in the same way that uh, Brian Wilson was. Um, these are two artists that release under their own names and collaborate with people as they see fit, as they want. Um, but they, you know, they have to deal with the stressors of fame and, and other people and creative control all the same. So we're going to look at D'Angelo's making a comeback here, and we're going to look at Fiona Apple. And I think hopefully here's my last aside for this episode. I said last week that the, the thing that makes me most upset about the spin list is that Lauren Hill is so far down. Second place is that Fiona Apple does not crack the top 100, and I can play with any of her albums that I want. Um, and look... I'm one of the people who, when Fetch the Bolt Cutters came out and got the 10 on Pitchfork, the first one in 20 years or whatever it is, I was like, hell yeah, absolutely deserves it. I'm totally behind that. So, I don't know, get the shaker of salt if you want with me, but I'm going to be careful before I say that, but she's in the running for the best musician and best songwriter of our actual time. Tim prefers me to be more more careful with timing, but... I'm a man of, of many times, but 1967 is probably not one of them. <laughs> I don't know, music is eternal. Um, now that I've gone hippie on everyone. So anyway, I'm a, so Fiona gets a better shake than Lauren Hill um, because she gets two albums in the spin ranking. Um, the album I'm going to talk about today ends up in there, and When the Pawn, which has a much longer title, and if I ram that into a future episode and make Fiona Apple the only one with two entries. <laughs> um, we'll talk about that more then, but I'm going to talk about The Idler Wheel today, which also has a longer title. I'll say that all in a minute, but that ends up at uh, 209 on the spin list. Uh, when the Pawn is like 123 or something. I forget when exactly. And I don't know that the D'Angelo album ends up in the thing. I don't think it does. Um, I will look into that a little bit later, but I don't think this one makes it into, I think he has Voodoo um, at number 10, but then Black Messiah, which we're going to talk about today, does not make an appearance. Um, So let's get into both of these. We'll start with D'Angelo and Black Messiah, his 2014 surprise album. Um, It was actually supposed to come out in 2015. Like That was the plan for the longest time, but he drops it in response to Ferguson in particular, um, and a lot of the (laughs) six years ago and the same stuff we're dealing with now, a lot of the racial tensions, um, particularly in the fall of 2014. Um, And 
songs like he had been working on this album for a long time this is 14 years after voodoo this is his third album there's nothing in between there i think as i mentioned in that episode he's struggling a lot in the meantime um with fame with himself as a sex symbol which he's uncomfortable with because it distracts from the music and his massive creative talent um and he gets into a lot of personal struggles but comes back He's debuting songs along the way. He plays a bit live in 2012. I think he takes he does a tour. Um, and then in 2014, drops this by surprise. And as is the case with all D'Angelo albums, uh, the critical praise is massive, uh, raving reviews, and um, everyone's just happy that, okay, he's back. He has another album. Like, this was worth the wait. Uh, when will we get another one? And we have no idea, but... The Black Messiah is often read in conjunction with Sly Stone's There's a Riot going on. Um, I hear a lot of Funkadelic's Maggot Brain in it. And, I mean, you can hear Prince all over D'Angelo's stuff, but in this one, too. Um, like, I think those are crucial touchstones for this, that it is a political, funk-based album um, that's just incorporating genres as they want to, really, because D'Angelo and the Vanguard, um, so, you know, in the name, like, technically the backing band, but, um, you know, he's working with Questlove again, he's working with established studio musicians, very um, accomplished jazz players, um, so they're important to the creation of this, but D'Angelo's writing all the stuff still. Um, but they're, I mean, it's a band that can just kind of do whatever they want, and that's because they're so good at all of it. And I think that's where the start, that D'Angelo writes brilliant songs pretty much always. I like every song on this album. And he's accompanied by a band that can keep up with him. Um, but this album doesn't go if it's not for D'Angelo, if it's not for his vision, for his persona. Um, but if you're looking for a touchstone, I think some of those like early 70s um, political funk albums, Sly Stone, Funkadelic... The, the various other George Clinton things. Um, like those are good touchstones for this. And that's kind of what you're getting into. And those albums also have an edge to them. And I see that, especially at the beginning of black Messiah. I think, I think the the album title is in reference to a review from Robert, uh, Crisco who called D'Angelo, uh, R&B Jesus, I think it was. So, um, I think it's a play on that, but then also the, like just the weight that was put on him after Voodoo that, again, he was deeply uncomfortable with, receded from public view because of, led him into a lot of struggle, um, in this long hiatus, but he's back now. And it's clear on this album that he has a better handling of it. I think like he feels more in control and, Part of that comes out in, I think, the opening track, Ain't, the, uh, Ain't That Easy, which could easily be about a lover. Um, the, ref the chorus refrain is, you can't leave me, it ain't that easy. But I can also hear in a meta way that even after 14 years, you're not going to leave me. Um, you're going to be here when I drop the album. So like, it doesn't matter how much time he takes away. Um, his, his art is vital enough that we'll always be there waiting. And he's right. I mean, he proved right here. I think if he ever releases another one, whenever he does, the same thing will happen. Um, and there's a 
a two-part song on the album separated by many tracks in between it but called back to the future one there's a line uh, it's something like about you're wondering what condition i'm in i hope you don't mean my abs so like a very direct line about um the perception of him as just specimen as a body as a sex symbol rather than as a musician which is a little on the nose for right the history of the not just the U.S.'s, but in particular the U.S.'s perception of blackness, of black bodies, of totally objectifying those, of using them as product, as contraption, as machine. Um, so there's this very personal angle to the entire album, but it comes politi- becomes political throughout. Um, I think after Ain't That Easy... I was saying earlier at the beginning of this album, so I think the first three songs, Ain't That Easy, 1,000 Deaths, and The Charade, are basically D'Angelo and the Vanguard saying, all right, we're going to take rock now, too, and make that ours. Um, I think on Voodoo, I mean, you hear some of it there, but not as much. I think these are harder songs with more of an edge, um, with some punk sensibility to them, some classic rock in there as well. Um, I think this is the full demonstration of, A, we've still got it, but B... We're just going to like we can do all of the genres um, and we can make these into uh, personal political art form. Um, A Thousand Deaths is so compressed and so coiled. There's so much energy in it. And it like briefly unleashes, unfurls about halfway through, but never entirely. Like it's just so pent up. Um, And it's the and there's a punk energy to it. And it's the first indication of how political the album is going to be. The intro to it um, is, let me make sure I get the, the name right here, Khalid Abdul Muhammad um, <clears throat> talking to a congregation about Jesus. Um, there's more here, but the takeaway line is, I'm not talking about a, a cracker Christ. Um, and then you know, talking about Jesus, the black revolutionary messiah, um, or at least the non-white Jesus, which... Spoiler alerts, folks, Jesus wasn't white. Um, And then it becomes a rumination on, like, standing up in the face of fear. But there's always a tinge of just inevitability of it to me that no matter what they do, part of the verse is I can't believe I can't get over my fear. They're going to send me over the hill. Like, part of it to me is that they're always going to get sent over the hill. Um, and there's a lot of that throughout Black Messiah that we need to stand up. Uh, there needs to be this unified vision and movement and, and action. But the game is rigged, and that really comes back in uh, the charade, the third song, um, the chorus to which all we wanted was a chance to talk. Instead, we only got outlined in chalk. Feet have bled a million miles we've walked, revealing at the end of the day the charade. Um, the opening to that song even is crawling through a systematic maze and it's, uh, and it pains to demise pain in our eyes, strain of drowning, wading into your lies. Uh, right. The language of the systematic maze, all we wanted was a chance to talk and got killed. Um, that the whole thing's a charade, the whole thing's a facade that despite any efforts, um, it's rigged and the charade it kind of feels like a like a classic rock song to me, or like what Prince is doing on like Purple Rain in particular, or maybe even some on Sign of the Times. Um, that's sort of the mood to it. 
But I think in that opening suite, you get A, the edge that is vital to Black Messiah, and then B, the uh, intertwining of D'Angelo's personal struggles and the political urgency and timeliness of this album, um, that it had to come out, in his view, after Ferguson, um, after the events of fall 2014 and all the racial animus. And after that that opening trio, it kind of moves back more into the kind of chiller jazz funk uh, type lane that Voodoo was hitting on a lot in its middle section. Um, you get, but it doesn't lose its political vigor. Uh, it doesn't lose that edge at all. You get Till It's Done, um, which has a very environmental reading. Uh, second verse, carbon pollution is heating up the air. Do we really know? Do we even care? Acid rain drops on our trees and in our hair. Are you there? Clock ticking backwards on things we've already built. Sons and fathers die. Soldiers' daughters killed. Question ain't, do we have resources to build? It's do we have the will? And I, I really like that verse as global warming being the thing that we're all facing that is hitting all of us and that is going to kill all of us. But still in those final lines, it's, I don't know, it sort of comes back to a more personal, to a kind of black power reading, I think. Um, and his ability to weave together that universal struggle um, of environmental change which I think this verse is definitely about, but still in the context of the full album that it comes back to the intersectionality of it all, that racial politics are important to this as well. And that how we deal with uh, environmental um, policies also has racial components to it. And I like, he's not the only one talking about this, but in music, I think D'Angelo is the only one doing this in 2014. So well, uh, the only one doing it now so well, really like, really being able to weave together all of these um, intersectional issues um, that it's not like you can't just pick one and go for that, that there has to be a stand for total revolution. Um, Prayer, which I think is a super interesting track. It's, it's very distorted and haunted and the drums in that are heavier than anywhere else. Uh, it's this very like plodding rhythm really. Um, but it's so high in the mix and so heavy in the mix and it's kind of this broken up, like chopped and screwed almost prayer to God for hope for something to hang on to. Um, but the music of it just makes it clear that like we're kind of screaming in the face of chaos um, and that everything's falling apart around us and we're trying to find something to hang on to. And Betray My Heart and Another Life, I think, are the big, like, funk, jazz, R&B barn burners of the album. Um, Betray My Heart is more of a light arpeggio jazz. Um, and uh, Another Life, which is the... the final track on the album has more of a soul and r&b vibe to it and it's d'angelo really unleashing his vocals i think um you can hear like those prince screams we all know those howls of emotion d'angelo has those he can hit those notes um but i think pointing them to something different here like this is still um you know the the refrain on another life is basically like in another life we could have been together like i could have had you or something like that um 
and it makes you wonder like again it's a song that like the opening ain't that easy um has so many different meanings i think or like it could be one about love about a romantic relationship that in another life we could have been together or just alternate history alternate universe stuff that in another life maybe we could have succeeded in taking care of climate change and racism and misogyny and uh you know all these uh different issues of power and oppression plaguing us maybe in another life we could have been together and unified um so i like throughout this album there's this hope that like of prayer of you're screaming out for something while everything around you crumbles um but there's a sense of power in it too and that's why i think the personal songs on here are necessary of d'angelo coming to terms with you know the perception of him from audiences of uh, the status that drove him in into hiding, basically, um, of kind of taking power of those, taking control of those, and then coming out with this album that is so eternal and yet so of its time, um, and tying together music in ways that really only D'Angelo and the Vanguard can do right now. Um, I don't think there's another band, another artist working in this particular lane. And... I mean, there's been a lot of talk in the last decade, really, about, you know, how does music be political in this environment? And, like, do we have any good attempts at that? And I think this speaks to the greatness of D'Angelo as an artist. No one really questions the ability of this this album to be pertinent, to be important, to be timely, to be directly released after Ferguson very purposefully and be, oh, yeah, that, that was absolutely necessary that it come out. Um so all that to, all of that together, just the genre proficiency, uh, D'Angelo's songwriting ability, the intertwining of personal and all realms of politics, um, and just the vision that this gives us of you got to keep hoping, you got to keep fighting, even though we may be doomed, even though the system may be uh, may be entirely rigged, and even though maybe we need another life entirely to find it. Um, and it's D'Angelo working through his art to try and find that answer. So, again, like the setup, I think there are kind of uncomfortable, um, sad parallels to Brian Wilson and D'Angelo um, and just the struggles they've had, how reclusive they become, how hard it becomes for them to like face the public. And yet when they come out, the songs are just there. They're so good. They're so necessary. And they're so uh, inventive and innovative. So anything you want to say about Black Messiah or D'Angelo before I go to Fiona Apple? No, it seemed, it seemed pretty thorough to me. Um, yeah, I don't even know that I have a, a whole lot to add. I feel like the majority of my D'Angelo takes came out uh, a few episodes back, so this was this is sort of beyond my pay grade. I, th- I think an important thing is... I did this too because I think it was a genre worth explaining and exploring on the podcast. Um, like talking about voodoo in relation to neo soul and to a genre as like the culmination of that. But when Black Messiah comes out, it's like, nope, it's just D'Angelo. Like it doesn't matter where we put it, it's him. Like it's his music. Um, he is the genre unto himself. Um, and in a similar vein, I think Fiona Apple is kind of in that space, too, that when she drops something now, it's like, it's her. It doesn't matter where you put it. It's Fiona Apple. It's her vision. It's her songs. It's her writing. Um, it's 
like she is this this genre, this institution onto herself. So we'll talk about the Idler Wheel, which I'm going to find and read the entire title of while I watch the cat go back and forth on the screen again. Um, so the idler wheel is wiser than the driver of the screw, and whipping cords will serve you more than ropes will ever do. And this is kind of for this is a much shorter one than the full when the pawn title, but her just kind of writing abstract poetry and making those album titles, which to me is just a hell of a flex. Um, <laughs> no one else is doing that. You're only getting that from Fiona Apple, and I think if anyone else tried that just be automatically discredited as pretentious and uh, like just so full of themselves that this is not an album worth engaging with. But for her, it's just like, I mean, you want any of her wisdom, really. Toby is staring at me as I talk. And I don't know. I feel like I'm convincing him now. <laughs> one of, one of these days we'll let him choose. <laughs> I'm so excited to, Actually, no, I'm not. <laughs> um, but anyway, so Idler Wheel comes out in 2012. This is seven years after her previous album, Extra Extraordinary Machine, which was six years before her second album, When the Pawn. And what I'm leading to here is actually, I hope, my final aside of the episode. It's been eight years between the Idler Wheel and Fetch the Bull Cutters this year. So by pattern, we're due for another Fiona Apple album in nine years, which is sad. <laughs> Maybe we'll get one before then. I don't know. Um, although I would entirely respect if she's just like committed to the pattern. <laughs> so her earlier, her first three albums title when the pawn extraordinary machine, there's this mixture of, I mean, it's jazz pop, really. Um, she's writing pop, but very jazzy, loungy type flourishes and structures. Um, this is noted by a lot of reviewers. There's a lot of hip hop. I mean, Fiona Apple is on the record with her appreciation and, and love for hip hop music. And like, there's a lot of that influence in her, her vocality in particular, um, in her vocals and just how she uses her voice. So it's this really interesting blend all around, um, made into pop music. But the other wheel is the start of this turn where um, it's basically just her. Um, she brought in a studio and touring percussionist to help with some songs to help fill out. But otherwise, it's her with a piano, with a guitar, and with whatever she finds around wherever she's recording at. I think this is the album that has a pillow credited on one song as an instrument. Um, and this really, really becomes a thing in this year's Fetch the Bull Cutters, which is all her in her house. Just like, There's a dog barking that becomes part of a <laughs> melody on that one. Like It's just her manipulating whatever she has around her. And the idler wheel is the full beginning of that turn, I think. Um, it, it's clear on previous albums how like it's her songwriting taking everything. And there are stories about with When the Pawn in particular. Like She brings in John Brion, I think it is, as the producer. And says basically, I have all the songs written. Like, here's the layout for all of them. Here's how they should go. I'm good at this part. You're here to like fill in stuff. Um, and so Brion basically guides the backing band in various ways. But the song structures and the 
the writing is all her. Um, she has the vision for all of this. So I think the real shift here is just the either wheel is more stripped down, but in a very powerful way, because it really is just her at this point. And, and this starts with the cover, I think, which if you look at it, it's a drawing that she made, um, kind of an impressionistic vision of her face. And her face features so prominently on four of her albums, um, including this one, but this one's not an actual picture. Um, I mean, it looks like blood in some places, various nerve endings, like she has a glass eye kind of going on. Um, and it is sort of this, like, really, you want to see inside my brain? You want to see me? You want the real me? Here, like, here's my sense of self. And I think that's an important framing mechanism. And it comes back in the opening track um, every single night, which... I think immediately you get the sense of, yeah, these are stripped down, literally. Like, there's less instrumentation happening. But, my God, they're even more impactful, even more powerful. Um, when she wants to build a moment, like, you're there and you're enraptured and you're with her. Um, but every single night is sort of that, like, journey into her brain, her neuroses. Um but something that I think all of us can relate to, though, that like the juxtaposition of, of, of the line, I just want to feel everything. And then every single night's a fight with my brain. And I've read those straight. You need to listen to get a sense of what she's doing vocally, because I think this is her best album for her vocals. I think it's just a masterclass in... You know, I saw... I forget who it was. Someone called her a postmodern Billie Holiday, which amuses me to no end, but I also think is right. Um, but just the jazz vocals, the, the, the rock percussiveness, the hip hop um, sensibilities and kind of flow and just how songs seem to bend to her vocals on this, by which I mean the music when it does appear seems to follow her vocals rather than it feels like she's fitting herself within something. Um, and this is especially true on one of the later songs, Hot Knife, which is just layers of vocals of her and her sisters on that as well. Her sister is a cabaret singer. Um, and it's basically those kind of call and response, but also not really, but just tons and tons of layers of vocals. And occasionally the piano shows up. And when it does, I think it shows up like three times and two of the times no one sings over it. It shows up for like five seconds and then goes away. So otherwise, this is a song entirely carried by the interplay of vocals. And you get a total sense of melody, of rhythm, of everything from it. And, you know, call that partially editing, I guess, but also just that an almost entirely acapella song, you get an entire sense of a song from it, is really, really impressive to me. And as great of singers as other artists out there can be, I don't know, maybe Tim, you can think of one, but like, I don't know another artist that could do a song acapella like that and have it feel like an entire melody and hook and, and rhythm section all at once. Like, yeah, there may be more impressive vocalists technically, but just in terms of building an actual song out of their voice, I don't, I don't know. I'm hard pressed. Like it would feel like they're, like singing within a structure that just got taken out in editing, I think. 
And I mentioned before, with Every Single Night, kind of the relatability of some of her lyrics. And I think that's true throughout the album as well. We'll stick with Hot Knife for a moment. Um, showing a dancing... Or, I read the wrong line first. The correct line I should have read first. He makes my heart a cinemascope screen showing a dancing bird of paradise. I think... It's a song about chemistry in general, about sexual chemistry in particular, but I think the multiple ways of reading that line of just, you know, finding someone, finding a lover who makes you feel that grand and that open and like that spontaneous in a way, um, animalistic in a good way. Um, But also you could read that as... Well, Cinemascope Screen, A Dancing Bird of Paradise, like that sounds like a documentary, kind of. So the voyeurism of all of that, or kind of the the objectification of body, of female sexuality. But then does that become a point of power? Because throughout the song, too, we get, um, you know, if I get a chance, I'm going to show him that he's never going to need, never need another. (laughs) So the complexity of of one image throughout that that whole song the, my heart becomes a cinemascope screen showing a dancing bird of paradise and then all the different ways you can take that but like i don't know maybe that's a better vision of love than 69 love songs and we got it in three lines um <laughs> tim gave me a thumbs up i think i might actually agree with that the more i think about it there's your critique of the magnetic fields everyone wanted from me um to that point though so often fiona apple songs are about relationships um often about them ending and about the fallout from that and i I, like i don't think anyone writes a send-off like fiona apple she's absolutely the best at this and the uh, the epitome of that from this album is the song regret or in the chorus, you get the lines, but I ran out of white dove's feathers to soak up the hot piss that comes from your mouth. And if you're looking for someone, if you're looking for, you know, breakup songs with, I don't know, some some power and some uniqueness to them, I think you should be listening to Fiona Apple instead of the kind of trite stuff we're used to hearing. No one else is, is providing imagery of dub's feathers and hot piss coming from mouth. And so in that way, even if you want to read this as an album about songs about romance, about love, and about the dissolution of that, oftentimes, you're still getting something totally unique. You're still getting something that only Fiona Apple is presenting us with, that you're not going to hear this kind of imagery on, like you're not going to hear about the dancing birds of paradise and, uh, you know, heart becoming a cinemascope. You're not going to hear uh, the dove's feathers and, and hot pish. You're not going to hear something like you made your major overtures when you were a sure and oratund mutt. And I was still a dewy petal rather than a moribund slut. Like, there's just the writing here is just so different and so unique and so much her. And, yeah, it's crucial that this is the first album that's really stripped back to just be her with piano, with with guitar, with whatever she finds around that she feels like adding into a song um, that we're fully into her brain now and um, totally focused on her. 
despite the kind of stripped-backed production, um, on something like Left Alone or Daredevil, Daredevil in particular, there's such a percussiveness to her voice. Like, it's in the middle of that song, it kind of breaks down, and she reiterates, look at, look at, look at me now. Um, uh, some other stuff as well, but like it, it's basically serving as both the drum beat, but it's also so arresting that you have to look at her then. I mean, you can't because song, but like it's... I, don't, I think the stripped back instrumentation really allows for her voice to shine in an even new way. Um, and by extension, her vision and her command and her narrative control to shine in a new way. Um, that she's guiding you through through her, that this is what we asked for, and here you go, you get it. Um, whether that's us as an audience, or a lover, or a, um, an ex, so you get kind of that melding of the meta and the personal that we saw on Black Messiah as well. And I, I don't want to make, when I keep saying it stripped down, I don't want to make it seem like it's not a musically interesting album, because it very much is. And Jonathan is one of the most playful songs, I think. And it starts... And I was I, I was re-listening to this album and writing notes, and just what I was... Like, my assessment of the music, and Jonathan opens what I wrote down as a player piano breaking down, and then finding a train rhythm. Like, it, it's sort of like the carnival or the player piano being torn apart as it's being played and then you get percussive elements that feel like a train warming up and kind of chugging in that ch -ch -ch sounds throughout that and like and then the first the first couple lines I, I, I was just very amused by this moment when it happened um not really a sing-songy way but how just her writing and her lines force you into that sort of rhythm um and I can't deliver like her, nor would I ever try, but like her writing is just so good and so crisp that it does force you into that. I can't really read those as sentences. You have to do them in, in a, a, a song way. Um, but I, I just think that's a really cool moment of the music sounds like this thing. And our immediate narrative is about Coney Island and take me on the train. Um, so that perfect overlap of emotional sound and emotional word. Um, the I think for many assessments, the kind of the core of the album is is the middle of it with tracks the tracks Left Alone and Werewolf. Um, Werewolf, I think for most people too, like these are the kind of the grandest expressions of her vocals of her voice of her range of um you know she's not out there belting in the same way of like a celine dion say like that's not the type of vocal technique we're talking about but just how emotive she is and how willing she is to stretch her boundaries and to make that part of the emotional significance that there are parts where she's actually pushing outside of the range that she can actually handle but that sounds totally natural in a way. Like, it's completely intended, like it's necessary to the emotional output of the song. Um, so I think Werewolf and Left Alone often are read as the, like, the best expressions of that, of the combination of like her more rhythmic um, verses and kind of the jazziness of choruses and, and her bridges and, and 
usually. Werewolf has the great line, nothing wrong with a song that ends in a minor key, which you could hear literally, um, songs ending in a minor key, and I agree. There's nothing wrong with that. That can be really interesting. But I think that's also emotionally significant that Werewolf is a song about a relationship that ends, and that's how the song ends. Like, there's no uplift at the end of it, but that's okay because that happens, and we can write songs about that, and many of the songs on here are like that. But that's cut with other, like, kind of oddly affirmative songs, like Anything We Want um, is, I think, between that and, and um, Jonathan in particular, we get the best sense of her fighting against kind of her previous work as well, which was a flashpoint for critics. Um, the video for Criminal lives on in infamy, and there's a lot doc- documented about her shifting from title to win the pawn and just the perception of her in the media as ornery and basically hipsterish. And, um, I mean, there's the VMA moment where she just says the world is bullshit (laughs) and she's right, but everyone (laughs) laughs at the ceremony and it's like, everyone missed the point. And so she just gets read as this angry, pretentious artist, basically. Um, who can make good music but is too full of herself to be like a, a good artist really and that's bullshit too but by the time the idler wheel comes out i think i think this is probably the album where everyone's like okay yeah that was all wrong um this is one of the foremost artists of our time and here's one of her grand statements um, but we see her wrestling with that too, and Left Alone is is the climax in terms of that. And the big line is, "How can I ask anyone to love me when all I do is beg to be left alone?" And so, with that song in here, it's an album of wrestling with legacy of public perception. Um, you know, she's a notoriously reclusive artist as well. Thankfully, doesn't seem to have had as many. Um, struggles as D'Angelo, or at least not ones that, um, at least not as public ones. She didn't, she didn't have the drinking problem. She didn't have the arrests. But this is an album aware of self. And again, that's framed by the, the album cover, by every single night of wading through the complexities of one's own mind, fighting it and wrestling it, and wanting to feel so much of it, but that being overwhelming to... The, the complete self-awareness and self-deprecation of how can I ask anyone to do this when all I want is to be left alone? And we see that idea play out in so many of the other songs um, as her ruminations on relationships, on love, on uh, being with someone of chemistry, of breaking up, of finding oneself and owning oneself. So this is, I, like, to me, this is kind of the album of, like, this is Fiona Apple writing Fiona Apple. And that it's so empathetic and relatable throughout is incredible to me. Um, and that's why I wanted to focus a lot on the lines that, like, all of us can feel part of, like, that sound really relatable to us. Because this is a vision of herself, written by her, played almost entirely by her where we are part of that and following along, but maybe we can find pieces to hang on to and to relate to along the way. 
and I don't know of an artist out there right now that I'd rather have that from, um, that it feels so interesting and compelling and necessary at the same time. So that's, I think, my general assessment of uh, the idler wheel. Anything you want to say about Fiona Apple? Listening to this one again, I was sort of struck just thinking about how there's, I don't know, you look at the other the other female artists who have like come in her wake as as like pop artists or or maybe like rock adjacent kind of artists and how all of them seem to be borrowing from her in some way like you listen to this and you can you can smell the Adele on it a little bit like you can smell where she's getting a lot of that authenticity from um, you can you can get the sense of of like a Regina Spector in there a little bit. Like there are like I feel like just about everyone who has had a moment in the sun and sort of like is it all like Fiona Apple and is is like has any kind of like resemblance to her, it's there. And and it really is interesting to listen to something and get the sense of like, right, this is a point where everybody else kind of has to respond to it and you can see everybody else trying it in a way that I just think is is so interesting to listen to. I think you can hear her and a lot of other artists, as you just said, but no one sounds like her. No one can quite do what she does in its entirety. Um, the artist I think about along with her a lot of the times is Cat Power. Um, another artist who would have been a good uh, subject for this category today. Um, even more so than, than Apple, I think, given her deep, deep struggles with stage fright um, and anxiety. And But anyway, I think about those two together a lot, how, I mean, I think you can listen to a lot of albums and see so much of what's happening with newer female artists, but it's just, it, like, it's never quite the same. No one can do the totality of what those two are doing. Um, and I think that's especially true of Fiona Apple. And I don't, like, I, The Idler Wheel is not my favorite album of hers, but I think it's maybe like her grandest artistic vision. Um, again, as like as the cover uh, preps us for, as the painting of her by her, um, that we're being let in and that she's able to make it so relatable and so human is is perpetually impressive to me. So the spin entry for today was the Magnetic Fields 1999 album 69 Love Songs, which I tried to be kind to, and then Tim and I shat upon in various ways, I think. But Sorry. I give some of it a listen. Like I again, I don't think it's a bad album. I th I'm glad it exists. It just doesn't do much for me emotionally. But we looked at two replacement titles that do a lot for me emotionally, and D'Angelo's 2014 album Black Messiah and Fiona Apple's 2012 album The Idler Wheel. And we looked at them in the category of Brian Wilson Effect, um, by which I meant genius-level songwriters with various mental and public struggles um, striving to overcome that and gracing us with just uh, incredible art um, and, and songs just great songs just kind of flow out of them and for D'Angelo looked around looked at that more through the lens of the continued blurring of genres that he and the vanguards um, make and 
how really I don't think there's another artist out there really carrying on that lineage lineage of Funkadelic and Slystone and Prince and and Neo Soul all in quite the same way, and his melding of the personal and political, and how he continues to be an artist that feels necessary no matter how long he's away, um, and that could be 14 years between albums, which is often the death sentence for an album that is just going to be entirely worked over um, and none of it's going to come together. And yet Black Messiah sounds as as animated and as vital as ever. And Fiona Apple, another artist prone to long waits between albums. But again, these are not albums that feel overworked or overcooked. Um, and the idler wheel being... <clears throat> instrumentally a stripped down version of her and really a glimpse into her perception of self into Fiona Apple as a person. And whether you want to look at it as an album of breakup songs, there's no one else working to quite the same magnitude as her. Um, she, she can really cut to an emotion or to a feeling in a couple lines with really provocative imagery or whether you want to look at it as Fiona Apple presenting us Fiona Apple and letting us connect with the human being that kind of got lost in the shuffle of reviewing title and when the pawn in particular. Um, it's, it's just a, a great statement of self that we can relate to. And I think in both of those ways, Fiona Apple, who we can hear in a lot of younger artists, um, no one's ever going to quite be Fiona Apple. Um, that when she, when she drops an album, like when D'Angelo drops an album, they feel important, and these are really pieces from artists uh, that no one else can replace in the way that we're not going to have another Brian Wilson, really. So I think that's basically my spiel. Tim, what are you thinking here? I have no idea. Like, I have, I have no idea Good. what I'm going to pick here. I have no sense of it. Um, golly, I guess I really, I really need to come up with a follow-up question, I guess. So if we're talking, if we're talking Brian Wilson effect, is it the, what, like there's a 1A, 1B thing here, right? So is the 1A, the singularity of the vision and the sense of the, like an, almost like an auteurist kind of through line that goes through the music or is 1A the the sense that they don't want to be in front of people doing it because they have struggled with the public and like the critical image that has preceded them. Because based on that, I think I could get to an answer. Um, but, but I am not sure which of those to value more. I mean, to give the frustrating answer, I don't think you get one without the other really. Yeah, like, <laughs> yeah, come at me, bro. Um, I mean, I do think it's, it's a Mobius strip in that way that both of those are, are crucial to understanding Brian Wilson. And I don't think you get the same Brian Wilson without all of that together in the same way that I don't think you get the same Fiona Apple or D'Angelo with all of that together. But, but let's look at it in term. let's put one a as the autorist singularity. Um, and I'm picking that one on the fly because I think these are two of the most singular artists out there right now in a way that I could have found other artists who struggle with with fame and public perception as well. Um, 
but that Fiona Apple and D'Angelo are doing something really special and really, um, not to overuse it, but really singular. So let's call that the 1A for right now. Okay, well, I'm glad you said that, because I was about to ask the cat what his thoughts were. I think this is going to be the most podcat episode in the history of this show thus far. If you heard him purring earlier, by the way, I apologize. Um, yeah, based on based on that, I can I can get this a little bit simpler. I think I can I can just about figure out where to go. Um, and based on the idea that the yeah, based on the idea that the um, the singular sensibility is what we're gonna look for here. I'm gonna go with Fiona Apple by a nose. I will go with the idler wheel here. Um, and I think I think what kind of decides it for me is, and it's hard to do this without making it sound like I am dissing D'Angelo in some way, which we don't do in this house or on this podcast, but I do have this... <laughs> sorry, I have to, like, lure the cat away with catnip while I do this. Anyway... <laughs> What I'm like, sort of, sort of looking at here, is that there are other artists, even if they were not at the vanguard, haha, of of suggesting that change needed to come around Ferguson. I think there are other artists who have sort of followed in that stead, in a way that I think, you know, might push him down a little bit just for the purposes of this choosing. So I will, I will pick the idler wheel here and hope that I can get through the rest of this recording without my cat eating me. I'll take over now. Uh, yeah, to be clear, there there is no D'Angelo hate allowed on this podcast. Nope. I would go fight Tim if you tried that. And I don't know. Maybe that means I have to put round sugar in in the future just so he ends up on the, the, the next list. Um, I told him before this episode, and I'll tell you the audience now, This I was going to be upset and happy either way with this one, because I love both of these albums, I love both of these artists, and it hurts to see either one of them go, but it's also really exciting to see either one of them get through. So I did this to myself, um, and I, I would not want to be in Tim's shoes of picking these right now, because... God knows what I would do. I mean, I still don't really know. <laughs> like, I'm not. I'm not sitting here like, oh yes, no, I'm confident. Like, I, I still am. It's, it's not quite coin flip territory, but it, it really picked me on a different day to do this, and I would choose something else. I think you know, like it's, it is a very even case for both. Both are deeply worthy inclusions, and I'm excited to see Fiona Apple go on. Um, as I said at the top, my second biggest complaint with the spin list is her not having a top 100 album. So let's rectify that. And so, yeah, today, again, the spin entry was Magnetic Fields, 69 Love Songs from 1999. And the possible replacement titles in the category of Brian Wilson Effect, where we looked at uh, tourist visions and singular artists who are doing uh, something totally unique and special to them. We looked at D'Angelo's Black Messiah and Fiona Apple's The Idler Wheel, and Tim has chosen by by the thinnest of margins, and understandably so, because these are both magnificent albums. 
Um, but he has chosen Fiona Apple's The Idler Wheel to go on to the subtitles albums list. So stay tuned for part two, where Tim is going to be discussing A Night at the Opera, not the the f- massively fun Queen album, but the old Marx Brothers joint, which is also massively fun in its own way. And we'll be looking at musical interludes, so some cohesiveness between these two. Uh, and if you want... <laughs> what were you saying, Tim? Just yay, but in a weird voice. <laughs> so if you want to read more about us, other things that we do and write, uh, check out my Spotify or Tim's Letterbox. Or if you want to see more about the process behind subtitles, or check out old episodes, or catch up if you're behind a little bit, go visit our website, subtitlespodcast.com, and stay tuned for part two.